You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When I was in seminary, in the first year of this millennium of ours, I was quite sure I was not an evangelical. I was part of the Stone Campbell movement, and ours was no inerrantist holdover from the Scopes trial, but a 19th century Protestant unity movement. Then I arrived at the University of Georgia English Department, and suddenly, uh, as someone who is neither a Catholic nor an atheist, I became by default an evangelical. I did, after all, read the Bible and pray every once in a while. Now I'm a professor at a historically Pentecostal college, and I find myself once more an evangelical, but what does that word mean? Tommy Kidd is here to let us know. His new book, Who is an Evangelical?, explores the history of that term and the movement, and Christian and Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him to the show. Tommy, thanks for coming aboard. Thanks for having me. Let's get some working definitions on the table early, since that's what our listeners are waiting for. What are some of the less useful notions of evangelical that are floating around here in 2019? And what does this book, Who is an Evangelical, set forth as its sort of working definition? Right. Well, I think that in political um, circles that the term evangelical has come to at least imply uh, white Republican voters who consider themselves religious. Um, and it, it, it's not even limited necessarily to Protestants. I, I don't think it's just people who uh, seem to want to bring their faith into the political sphere. Um, and that's that's not very helpful, I think, because um, it's a pretty ephemeral definition, and it's limited just to, uh, obviously, to whites, but also whites who participate in uh, American politics. And from the beginning, uh, evangelical was a term that had um, at least international, if not global, significance. Um, and, of course, even though evangelical uh, faith has always had political implications, uh, I think you'd have to be pretty cynical to think that that evangelicalism was always primarily a political movement. So uh, to someone like you, I'm sure it's not any surprise how I very basically define evangelicals, but it now does run against that politicized definition. And that's that an evangelical is just simply a born-again Christian. Um, and, and that would normally be limited to, to Protestants as well in the historic trajectory of the movement. Um, but to add a little more detail, um, because there, there is more to being an evangelical just than, than being born again, but I add uh, to the conversion experience that defines what it means to be born again, I also add an ongoing sense of having a personal relationship with God or the, the felt presence of God in your life. And, uh, you know, different kinds of evangelicals might talk about that in a different way. Uh, Charismatics and, and Pentecostals might talk a lot more about the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, while uh, non-Charismatics probably are more likely to talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. But either way, there's, uh, there's a sense that as you walk through life, that you have a, an active relationship with the Lord. And then, uh, of course, uh, one of the defining marks uh, uh, from, uh, for evangelicals, especially in more recent uh, evangelical history, has been a very high view of the Bible. Now, 
at the at the outset of the evangelical movement, the modern evangelical movement in the 1700s, that that view of the Bible didn't necessarily set evangelicals apart from uh, other Reformed um, Christians, Protestant Christians, because of course sola scriptura was was one of the animating principles of the Reformation. Um, but once you get to the late 1800s, um, when evangelicals or as they were often called then, fundamentalists, start to battle against modernist theology, um, that this kind of evangelical biblicism um, and belief in at least the infallibility of the Bible, if not the outright inerrancy of the Bible, becomes uh, a more of a defining, unique characteristics of evangelicals. So, so I try to keep it as, as, as simple as I can, and I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea of just born-again uh, believers, but uh, I, I would also add the felt presence of God and high view of the authority of the Scripture. Very good, very good. I want to pick on a couple uh, grammatical notes uh, from your account there, and uh, it echoes what's going on in the book. What I did not know, uh, one of the many things I didn't know before I read your book, I, I actually learned a quite, quite a bit here, uh, is that the noun evangelical actually predates the noun fundamentalist. So, I mean, when does evangelical become a noun? Right. So, of course, the root of, of the word evangelical is evangelion in Greek, which is simply means good news. And um, that, that word was often in German uh, just a, a, a word that indicated someone was a Protestant in the era of the Reformation. Um, and so Lutheran uh, sometimes was also just evangelisch in, in German. Um, and then in, in English, um, the, the word uh, you know, certainly precedes the Great Awakening of the 1700s when we often see, we often see the Great Awakening as the kind of kickoff moment of, of modern evangelicalism. Um, and, and so evangelical was also a term associated with the Reformation in English, uh, and so it goes back to at least to the 1500s, 1600s. And in the 1700s, evangelical starts to be associated with the Great Awakening. Um, and the, the movement led especially by the great English revivalist George Whitfield, who was the most important evangelist of the Great Awakening. Um, but in those decades, when the word evangelical is used, it's almost always used as an adjective. Um, so the, an evangelical preacher or an evangelical book or the evangelical prophet, Isaiah was often called the evangelical prophet. Um, but, but it was, as far as I know, in the 1700s, it was almost never used as a noun. Um, and one of the first instances that I can find of it being used as a noun is in 1807 in a piece of uh, writing in England that basically associated, um, the, the term evangelicals with uh, the followers of George Whitfield. Um, and, and so even though Whitfield had been dead for more than 30 years by 1807, he was still such a huge presence in the evangelical movement. His memory was such a huge presence among evangelicals that this writer said that his followers uh, had taken on the name evangelicals. So so that's an instance of it starting to be used as sort of a name for the members of a movement, not necessarily a denomination, um, but this trans-denominational evangelical movement and followers of George Whitfield. 
So that's what it means uh, when it first starts being used. But then evangelical, um, as a noun, sometimes gets attached to missionary societies um, and Bible societies and, and, and groups like that in, um, in Britain and America, and it starts to be more commonly used as, as, as a noun. But I don't really think that until you get to the 1940s and the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals in America— uh, I think that's probably the point where it's, it really turns definitively to being more commonly used as a noun. Yeah, and I and now that I'm thinking about it, I, I'm realizing things that I should have known already. But I've seen uh, the movement in the 1940s, 1950s referred to as the neo-evangelical movement, and I, right. I suppose there must have been a paleo-evangelical <laughs> movement as well. I I don't know why that never occurred to me until right now, but. Uh, there well, you go. Sometimes it right. takes and, me a while. And, and I think that neo-evangelical is is partly um, a reaction against the term fundamentalist, uh, because fundamentalist for maybe 40 years had been used basically as a synonym for evangelical and got uh, t- attached to uh, both the fight against uh, modernist theology and also uh, the fight against teaching evolution in public schools. And by the 1940s and 50s, I think people like uh, Carl Henry, founding editor of Christianity Today, was looking for some kind of new term to move past the, some of the stigmas attached to fundamentalists. So neo-evangelical, but then they just dropped the neo and started calling themselves evangelicals. Right, right. I want to focus on a historical document that I often hear cited. I can't count how many times... Uh, people lamenting the departure of mandatory prayers from public schools or other such cultural changes have insisted to me that separation of church and state comes neither from the Constitution nor the Declaration of Independence, but from Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. What I appreciate about what your book does is it puts it in its own moment and demonstrates what I shouldn't have found surprising but did a little bit, namely that Jefferson's high wall uh, was not a an apology to the Danbury Baptists, but it was uh, an offering to them. It was to curry favor with them. Uh, talk to our listeners for a moment about that strong strain of uh, religious independence that characterized some of those early Baptists. Right. Well, the the Baptists were so used to being persecuted in the colonial era, and some some Baptist preachers were still being put in jail, especially in Virginia, for illegal preaching right on the eve of the American Revolution. And so they were keen to make a common cause with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, because even though Jefferson in particular didn't share their religious beliefs, he definitely was a champion of religious liberty and getting the government out of the business of uh, persecuting dissent and that and that sort of thing. Um, and, and the Baptists and Jefferson wanted uh, there not to be any kind of official state denomination like the Anglican Church in uh, colonial Virginia. And so um, this, I, I sometimes call this alliance evangelicals and deists together. Uh, they, they, you know, it's kind of today you couldn't imagine these groups cooperating, but uh, in the Unless they're all Republicans. <laughs> right, right. And the deists wouldn't be Republicans, uh, not not in the modern sense. But anyway, um, so they, they uh, cooperated together at the state level in, in Virginia, for instance, for 
the disestablishment of the state church, um, and uh, they're they're sort of the you know the radical evangelicals and then the deists were fighting against sort of the moderate Anglicans who still liked the idea of having a state church, um, and that that uh, common cause transferred over into Baptist support for Jefferson. Uh, against John Adams when Jefferson defeated John Adams in the 1800 presidential election. Uh, and John Adams was sort of more friendly towards established religion, especially in uh, Massachusetts. So the Baptists didn't like Adams because of that. And um, and, and so the, the Baptists were just fawning over Jefferson. They, they, they just thought he was sort of a, a political savior figure for them. Uh, because he defended their their religious liberty, and so they sent him, you know, congratulatory letters on being elected president, and you know, prayed that God would bless his presidency and all all this sort of thing. And uh, so the letter to the Danbury Baptists is a is a a public response of Jefferson to just one of these Baptist associations that wrote him this kind of uh, uh, praising letter, um, and. Uh, the the Danbury Baptists in Connecticut, in particular, were still struggling against uh, the established state church in Connecticut, which was the Congregationalist Church. Uh, the First Amendment didn't prohibit the states from uh, continuing to have official state churches. That's not the way the First Amendment was understood originally. Uh, and so Connecticut kept on having a, an official state denomination until the 18-teens. And so one of the things that the, the Danbury Baptists had asked Jefferson about was whether he could help them to get rid of the official state denomination in Connecticut. And basically, uh, Jefferson's response was, well, look, I mean, I'm the president of the United States. I can't really mess with Connecticut's state church. Uh, but aren't we glad, uh, in effect, he, he said to them that um, at the national level that the First Amendment prohibits uh, any kind of national denomination official denomination, uh, uh, thus establishing, thus erecting a, a wall of separation between church and state. And so it was definitely Jefferson expressing his support for the Danbury Baptists and their disestablishment views um, and, uh, and, and basically thanking them for supporting him because he didn't have very many supporters in New England. And, uh, and and so it definitely was not any kind of hostility at all. They they uh, they loved him, and in fact, it went so far that that same weekend um, there was one of the key Baptist evangelists, a, a pastor named John Leland, came and gave a, a sermon before uh, Congress with Jefferson in attendance. Uh, that was kind of, I think it's kind of an embarrassing sermon because it was talking about how wonderful Jefferson was and, uh, and, and you know, he's sort of inappropriate material for a, a sermon. But in any case, it was that was all part of this kind of championing of religious liberty that uh, Jefferson did and the Baptists just loved it. Very good. So listeners, now you'll know uh, when people bring up that document that the letter to the Danbury Baptists was something that arose uh, in the face of anti-disestablishmentarianism. Yes. I, I actually I, just never had a chance to use that word in a podcast, and now <laughs> I have. But I, 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 I thank you for that occasion. I, I want to hear you talk, and I want our listeners to hear you talk a little bit about the relationship between evangelicals and printing. This was a section of the book that I found just utterly fascinating. Uh, I mean... We often associate, you know, modern evangelicals with your 
uh, you know, Christian bookstores and with, you know, the christianbook.com that recently had to drop their URL cbd.com for other reasons entirely. Uh, <laughs> but in the 19th century, talk to our listeners a little bit about evangelicals and printing. Yeah, I think that, that evangelicals have always been at uh, the leading edge of communication technology, and uh, for a lot of evangelical history, that was through print. Uh, but of course, it, then it transfers over into radio and TV and internet and, and, and so forth. Uh, certain evangelicals have always been very good, very entrepreneurial about this. Uh, and that started with George Whitfield in the 1700s. Um, he was uh, a great preacher, but maybe even more importantly, he was a master of, of, of print publicity. Um, and so especially when he came to America, he partnered with Ben Franklin, who at that time was not known outside of Philadelphia and was sort of an up and coming printer in Philadelphia. And uh, Whitfield uh, was looking for the best media people that he could find in Britain and America. And Franklin was it for him. Uh, in 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 Philadelphia and and uh, and so uh, they they worked together to uh, friend Franklin was one of the key players in publicizing the revivals of the Great Awakening. Now that's not because Franklin was an evangelical; he wasn't an evangelical, and he and Whitfield both knew that. Um, but uh, Franklin was more than willing to help Whitfield publicize. Uh, his revivals and the controversies over the Great Awakening. And so he would publish Whitfield sermons, and then Franklin would publish anti-Whitfield material. And Franklin just made a lot of money off of all of it. <laughs> Which uh, is what Ben Franklin does best. Yeah, that's what he wanted. And so uh, the, between about 1739 and 1742, the, the publishing output of the colonial presses uh, got close to doubling um, and almost all of the doubling is because of increased output about George Whitfield. Um, and, and so that, that's just an, a phenomenal increase in a very short period of time. And, uh, and that sort of sets the pattern going into the 1800s where uh, evangelicals are always there on kind of the front lines of uh, innovative techniques in terms of Bible distribution and new, new developments in the print trade. Um, and so it's not uh, terribly surprising that uh, uh, a couple, at least, of, the, of course, the Bible is always the best-selling book uh, in American publishing history, but uh, some of the, the best-selling books in the 1800s and the 1900s and the early 21st century are evangelical books, either novels or uh, devotional books. In the 1800s, two of the best examples are uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which is at least uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe is out of an evangelical background, even though she's becoming more skeptical um, by the time of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And then and then uh, Ben-Hur, uh, A Tale of the Christ uh, by Lou Wallace, or, or uh, in terms of uh, fiction or historical fiction are, are uh, two of the very best-selling books of the 19th century. And they're they're both kind of exploiting the, the evangelical uh, patterns in the print trade. Very good. A few of my questions today are going to be about moments in American evangelical history that I learned about for the first time in your book. So I'm going to pause right now and apologize to uh, my church history professor, Paul Blowers, since I obviously didn't pay close enough attention when I took his uh, 
the history of the church in America class. Uh, But I want to hear you talk for a moment about the 19th century African-American international missionary societies. Uh, This is a group of American Protestants I had never even heard of. Where did they go? How did they get there? How did they overcome the obvious obstacles to their travel? Right. Well, uh, African-American evangelicals uh, were were often on the front lines of uh, the early missions movement. And um, and 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 a lot of the early missionaries are, are not necessarily appointed formally as missionaries, but they end up traveling for one reason or another and they bring the gospel with them. Um, but by the 18 teens and 20s, there were definitely African-Americans who were establishing missionary societies uh, and being formally sent out as as missionaries, um, one of my favorite examples is uh, uh, David George, who w- had been a slave in uh, in Virginia and South Carolina, and then became the uh, the pastor of at least one of the leading candidates for the uh, the first enduring African American congregation in America, which was the Silver Bluff Church in South Carolina founded around 1772-73. And then uh, David George, uh, because of developments in the American Revolution, he ended up moving first to Charleston uh, from the interior of South Carolina out to Charleston. And then he shipped out with the British at the end of the American Revolution to Nova Scotia, and he established a Baptist church there uh, and and stayed in, in Nova Scotia for about a decade. And then he took a lot of his congregation because of various difficulties they were having in Canada. He took his uh, congregation to Sierra Leone in West Africa um, and became uh, one of the leading uh, pastors and theologians in in, uh, West Africa in the early 1800s. I mean, David George wasn't necessarily, again, appointed as a a missionary in a formal way, but but he, he was obviously one of the key uh, pastoral and missionary leaders of the African American Church transatlantic um, movement in in his time. Um, there there was uh, also George Lyle, who uh, may have been involved in in evangelizing David George, who uh, went from South Carolina to Georgia and then on to Jamaica around the same time, uh, founding Baptist churches along the way. Uh, and then there was uh, Lot Carey, who was uh, w- one of the key uh, formal Baptist missionaries in the 18-teens, 1820s. Um, and he, he again, went, went from the South to West Africa um, and was involved in, uh, in establishing an African-American missionary society. And so there are a lot of these characters uh, that, uh, that often get forgotten. I mean, we, we tend to, in, in Baptist circles, we talk a lot about Adoniram Judson as as the first American missionary, but I think that that's a, that, that's a, a bit of a mistake because I, I think it, you're thinking in terms of people being formally appointed as missionaries by a missionary society, and uh, as and as in most uh, subjects in American history, uh, people of color often get left out of these discussion, discussions, uh, even if they chronologically preceded the the formal white. Uh, engagement in, in uh, missions movements. Very good. There's another group that uh, stirred my imagination, and that is the crew of Asian American evangelical pastors, also in the 19th century, uh, who brought this particular kind of Protestantism to 
Chinese and other immigrant communities out west. Uh, what was the path of influence here, and in what ways did these pastors adapt evangelicalism to those very particular West Coast communities? Right. Well, uh, there's a there's a broader story here about um, the way that evangelical development tends to follow immigration patterns. I mean, and and so it would be very surprising to find any situation in in American evangelical history where there's not uh, a connection between uh, the movement, mass movement of immigrants, and then the founding of evangelical churches. I mean, you could tell the same story w- with Catholics and so forth, but 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 my my topic obviously is uh, is evangelicals, and so in the 1800s, especially once the California Gold Rush begins uh, in in the late 1840s, you you start to have mass Chinese immigration to the West Coast, and then uh, and some Japanese immigration too, and it's not too long before places like Seattle and San Francisco and Denver uh, start to have Asian and Asian American. Uh, uh, evangelical congregations. And so, uh, for instance, there was a Baptist evangelist named Hung Sung Nam, and, and he was working with a Northern Baptist to evangelize uh, Chinese people in San Francisco. And he would say uh, that, that you know, if, if we could uh, just have the infrastructure for it, he said, I could, I could have uh, a thousand heathen. He called them them heathen, right? He's a Chinese evangelist, and he calls the Chinese heathens. Uh, and he says, I, c- I could have a thousand Chinese people gathering within uh, my church uh, every Sunday if you'll just build the, the church for me. And so, uh, you know, that, that's that's a just one story, but there there are many characters like this who are establishing, uh, you know, the first Asian American. Uh, Chinese American, Japanese American, uh, you, you know, Baptist or other kind of evangelical congregations in the West Coast cities, and so uh, certainly there's been a great deal of development among Asian American evangelical churches since 1965, because there was a major uh, change to American immigration law that year. But th- those patterns date back at least to the 1840s uh, in American e- immigration and religious history. Yeah, that's fascinating because, you know, as you said, this is a part of history that, uh, in in my own reading, uh, never even showed up on the radar. You know, I mean, I often read that, you know, the African-American evangelical churches get overlooked, but uh, I didn't even know of the existence of these immigrant communities. So, like I said, I'm, I, I learned something new reading this book. Great. Well, I know that when I was in seminary 20 years ago, uh, every conversation about international missions uh, had to include disclaimers about Anglo-American imperialism and the long and undeniable history of attempts to civilize people on other continents. What I didn't know is just how early those critiques started. So what were some of the lines of arguments criticizing this cultural and even national colonialism that gets linked with evangelical missionary activity uh, from the 1880s, 1890s. Right. So um, I, I mentioned Adoniram Judson. Uh, the, there were, you know, early missionaries going out to uh, India and Burma and parts of the British Empire. Uh, and so even before you get, um, 
you know, American engagement with overt colonialism, like in the Philippines in the late 1800s, uh, the, there were American missionaries, British missionaries who were going out to parts of the British Empire and their their legal uh, cover for, for doing that and their protection often depended on especially British imperial power. Um, so that's that's an older story uh, when uh, the United States gets involved in uh, colonizing uh, the Hawaiian Islands in the 1800s. There's a lot of criticism from people like uh, Herman Melville, for instance, the author of Moby Dick, and say, saying that all all this is for is to economically exploit these these people, and you know you're telling them about Jesus along the way. But what do you really want are sugar plantations? You know, that, that's that's kind of the line of criticism. And it's also true that uh, there were a number of these promoters of missions that talked about missionary influence in a very kind of manifest destiny sort of way. So that whether it's, uh, you, you know, the colonization of, of the Hawaiian Islands or even earlier, the American Southwest, northern parts of Mexico, uh, what became Texas to out to California, a lot of times the, the justification for expanding uh, American power was that you would bring the gospel to, you know, quote, benighted people, uh, whether uh, Catholics or, uh, quote, heathens or, you know, whoever these these people are. And so, you, you know, the part of the justification for uh, bringing American influence or even conquering these these areas militarily was because it would open a door for the spread of the gospel. And, and in a way that's undoubtedly true, uh, though we might ask it at what cost, at least in a temporal sense, uh, and can, can the, the gospel ever be effectively spread uh, at the point of a bayonet is, is, is debatable. Uh, but that was always uh, a problem and, and, and pretty generally pretty uncritical way um, at least through the early 1900s. But as you've suggested, over the past 50 or 60 years, uh, missiologists in particular have gotten very interested in this question of, you know, can, can we have missions without all the cultural and imperial baggage? And, and it, that's still a live discussion, but it, uh, there's no doubt that over recent decades that missiologists and missionaries have just been much more sensitive to those kind of questions than people were uh, especially in the late 1800s. Very good. Uh, one question that that occurs to me, I mean, to what extent are critiques like that of Jean-Jacques Rousseau or some of the Romantic era's uh, critiques of civilization related to this missionary movement? Because that, that's a connection, like I said, that hadn't really occurred to me. But, you know, now that I've read your history, it seems like they're happening in roughly the same era. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, uh, you know, an association, and again, I think fairly uncritical association uh, between um, Western civilization and education and cultural refinement and Christianity. And that was not just evangelicals. I mean, it it was uh, what would come to be known as kind of mainline people, more modernist uh, theologians often were uh, as eager about these sort of pairings as evangelicals were. Um, and so, uh, you know, even in, in the, the newspaper article that coined the term manifest destiny, 
1845, there was a discussion about uh, sending into Mexico, uh, you know, schools and uh, education and refinement and Protestant churches, and they all go together and they're all part of our manifest destiny to overspread the continent. Um, so that there, there's very deep ties between all these kind of categories of civilization, education, refinement, and uh, Christianity that now uh, missiologists like to try to, to separate. Very good, very good. You spend a bit of time on the famous trial in Cleveland, Tennessee, and the dramatized and demonized and mythologized and magnified encounter between Clarence Darrow, William Jennings Bryan, H.L. Mencken. Your book treats this as a kind of turning point, so tell our listeners about the trial and about what kind of change this trial signals or even what kind of change this trial causes. Right. I, I think the Scopes trial is definitely a turning point. I, I think maybe my reason for it being a turning point is different from some other people's reason. I mean, um, in, in American pop culture, uh, that is seen as uh, this great defeat for anti-evolution and it's sort of an important step in the rise of scientific thinking in American education. Um, and, and there's no doubt that, at least symbolically, it's an important moment for those reasons, although um, the truth is, is that John Scopes, who had the biology teacher who had volunteered to teach evolution in order to create this test case, I mean, he lost his case. He was convicted of teaching evolution, and the anti-evolution laws remained on the books in many of the southern states uh, for some time after the Scopes trial. Um, so a lot of fundamentalists felt like the Scopes trial was a, a victory, not a loss, um, even though it did come with some embarrassing media coverage, um, that especially because William Jennings Bryan, who had agreed to represent uh, the state of Tennessee in the case, um, was challenged in the case. Uh, it, it, it really did turn into kind of a farce, uh, and he was challenged in the case by Clarence Darrow, the ACLU's lawyer, to defend some things in the Bible that uh, Brian was not very well prepared to defend and, uh, you know, asking him questions about the age of the earth and uh, where the big fish came from that swallowed Jonah and the, these kind of things. And, and Brian was was sort of flummoxed to, to answer some pretty basic kind of higher critical critical questions about the Bible. Uh, Brian was also uh, quite ill at, at the time of the trial, and he was going to die uh, just, uh, just days after the trial was over. So I think he was not in his uh, uh, best debating uh, form because it, because of his illness. But I, I, I think what is, uh, to me, for my purposes, makes the Scopes trial an important turning point is actually within the interior history of the evangelical movement, because it, it's the end of, of uh, the fundamentalist modernist controversy and fundamentalists fighting against um, modernist theology but in the 1870s and 80s, that, that, that controversy really started off about uh, the control of seminaries in particular. And so, for instance, um, uh, Crawford Toy was, was removed from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for teaching liberal theology and liberal interpretations of the Old Testament in particular, uh, uh, the, the authorship of the Pentateuch and 
the authorship of Isaiah and the, these kind of issues that are sort of classic higher critical um, uh, concerns about the the Bible and the reliability of the author, the traditional authorship of the, of the biblical books. Um, but in the 1920s, the fundamentalist movement shifts pretty dramatically away from a kind of interior concern about what is being taught in our churches and especially our seminaries to being a more public issue about what's being taught in the government-run public schools. Um, and that, I think, speaks to a, a tendency among evangelicals that's always been there, um, but it, it kind of waxes and wanes through evangelical history, to sometimes look for ways to have that kind of establishmentarian um, public influence so that we're going to um, uh, not just worry about what our churches and seminaries are teaching, but, but what's being taught in public schools government-run public schools, and kind of an assumption that evangelicals would have a custodial role over uh, what can and can't be taught in public schools. Um, and I, I think, at least implicitly, there were a number of fundamentalist leaders who who thought that William Jennings Bryan was a bit of a Johnny-come-lately. I mean, he really hadn't had much of a role in the fundamentalist movement until he uh, resigned from the Wilson administration um, and and he was kind of looking for something else to do. He had been uh, arguably the leading figure in the Democratic Party for uh, a couple of decades, and he was kind of looking for something else to do, and he was really bothered about evolution. And so he, he ended up making the evolution issue, um, the evolution is issue went from being kind of one among a number of fundamentalist concerns, especially within the churches, uh, to the fundamentalist concern, at least in the media, um, and not so much about what's going on in the seminaries and churches, but about what's going on in public schools. So I, I think that that is a step towards uh, a deep kind of politicization of the movement, and I think that's an important precedent for what starts happening in the evangelical movement in the 1970s and 80s. All right, and we're going to get to that to be sure, but before we do, talk for a moment about the beginnings of Christianity today and its place in evangelical history. Well, the the National Association of Evangelicals, as we've already talked about, was founded in the 1940s as a kind of post-fundamentalist uh, organization trying to get beyond even some of the, you know, the fighting about uh, evolution in public schools um, and some of the more strident uh, anti-modernist kind of preaching of the fundamentalist movement. And uh, the NAE was interested in projecting a more intellectual, urbane, cosmopolitan kind of image of this, this new evangelical set. And, uh, and then uh, it, uh, uh, several years after that, you have the emergence of Billy Graham as the most visible American evangelical leader, especially because of the 1949 Los Angeles crusade, which gets major national media attention for Graham for the first time. And, uh, and, and so Graham allies with some of the key leaders of the national association of evangelicals to try to have this, this kind of, um, more activist, uh, uh, public facing, as I said, uh, intellectually respectable sort of uh, evangelical movement. 
And of course, for Graham, that was always in the name of evangelism. And he wanted to have uh, a broader public influence for uh, for Christ. And uh, so uh, Graham uh, helped Carl Henry to to found Christianity Today in the mid-1950s. And uh, there was a sense that Christianity Today was going to originally be a, a sort of popular but but still intellectual, somewhat academic publication that would be uh, a key outlet for apologetics and defending the Bible, um, and that it, it, a lot of theologians would write for it, seminary professors and so forth would, would write for it. Um, and over time, it, it uh, migrated towards being more of a popular interest magazine for evangelicals. But I think since its founding in the 1950s, uh, Christianity Today has been a, a flagship magazine of sorts for evangelicals, although the, there are other uh, evangelical magazines who probably actually have more readers, like World Magazine and, uh, and uh, Charisma Magazine and so forth. But, um, but Christianity Today has always projected a, a, a sort of more refined, cosmopolitan, urbane, intellectual kind of image of, of evangelicals, and it continues to try to do that even through present day, while uh, uh, also sometimes continuing to have that that more um, combative, anti-modernist type of type of dynamic that goes on. And it, sometimes that's almost completely gone away in Christianity Today, and then other times it's been. Uh, a little bit more uh, edgy uh, kind of confrontational evangelical content, and that that's basically waned in the magazine's history. Some sometimes uh, uh, the the evangelical content in terms of evangelism and anti-modernist has almost completely gone away. But uh, I would say right now, Christianity Today is is a more uh, moderate evangelical version that's that is still tapped into its origins in the 1950s. That makes some good sense, and and I should have looked this up before we started recording. But uh, the Christian Century was it? Did it start before Christianity Today? Were the two publications aware of each other? I, I always feel like people mention those two in tandem. You know, the mainline Christian Century, the Evangelical Christianity Today. Did they think of each other as you know the flagship publications of rival factions, or is that something that we? And by we, I mean me in the 1990s imposed on those two magazines. Right. Well, I would have to get my colleague, Alicia Kaufman, who's written the best book on the Christian century to talk about the details. But it, it, the Christian century definitely preceded Christianity Today. And uh, and I believe that Carl Henry uh, and his collaborators are definitely conscious of their uh, role in counteracting the influence of, of the Christian century um, but the Christian century and Christianity today, I think both have a share in common, a desire to project a sort of sophisticated version of Christianity. But the, the Christian century would have assumed that that evangelicalism was necessarily a problem for sophisticated Christians, uh, where Christianity today believed that you can be both evangelical and this kind of cosmopolitan intellectual Christian. Very good, very good. I'm going to leave out most of the rest of the 20th century for our listeners to discover when they buy your book, uh, but I do want to note that your book traces a boom in immigrant churches in places like Boston, 
uh, and a tendency for journalists to ignore those congregations when they talk about American evangelicalism. So what I do want to ask you is, what events, what trends, uh, what has made these congregations so close to invisible when we have conversations about the public role of evangelicals and evangelicalism? Right. Well, uh, the growth areas uh, over the past 50 years in evangelical and Pentecostal churches in America have definitely been among immigrant groups, beginning with Hispanics. Um, and uh, but, the, but there's a lot of different kind of new immigrant groups, especially after 1965 and the changes in immigration law of that year that 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 really changed the landscape of American religion in general. Uh, but but the new immigrants over the past 50 years have still been disproportionately Christian. I mean, there, there are growing numbers of Muslims and, and Buddhists and so forth. But but uh, almost all of the major immigrant groups tend to be disproportionately Christian, uh, again, starting especially with Latinos. Um, and and a lot of Latinos are out of a Catholic background, but growing numbers of them are Pentecostal or evangelical. Um, and sometimes they go to both evangelical and Catholic churches. Um, so so uh, there's an increasing ethnic diversity of evangelicals over the past um, uh, 50 years. But as you suggested, a lot of that goes on kind of under the radar screen uh, or off the radar screen of, of religious demographers and journalists. So uh, you mentioned Boston, for instance. We think that there's probably about twice as many Protestant churches in Boston now as there were 50 years ago, even though a lot of uh, white uh, church leaders think of New England as sort of the graveyard for Protestant churches, uh, you know, a place where historically there was this great Protestant strength in New England, but that now New England is one of the most secular areas of the country. That's true to a certain extent, but uh, th- but there's also been incredible church growth in Boston. Uh, it's just that a lot of it is among immigrant-led uh, churches, and, and that's uh, Latino, and it's Asian American, and it's uh, Caribbean immigrants, uh, Sub-Saharan African, um, all across the immigrant uh, landscape. And, and, and so um, I think there are a variety of reasons why these churches— uh, don't get discussed or noticed in, in the media. I mean, partly it's just because uh, uh, Christians of all kinds almost never get covered in the media unless they're connected to some kind of political controversy. Um, and so uh, a lot of these immigrant churches are not especially political or they have sort of divergent you know, political commitments within the church. And, and so that, that doesn't really work very well if all we notice is uh, in in uh, the the media is uh, white Republican Christians, um, that the, those are the people who get the disproportionate amount of coverage. But it's also true on a more uh, granular level that um, uh, we think now that uh, there there may be a, a gross undercounting of the number of churches generally in America, and the the most likely to be uh, uncounted or undercounted are um, these immigrant churches. And, and sometimes it's because they're part of denominations that demographers don't know about. Uh, sometimes it's because they're independent churches. Sometimes it's because they're churches that meet in other churches' buildings. 
Um, so, uh, for instance, just in Waco, you know, the, there are Chinese churches that meet in, in more established congregations, white-dominated churches, uh, buildings, but they're functionally a separate church. So the Chinese church meeting this, you know, Baptist church in Waco, um, and, and that's certainly the case in, in larger cities. Uh, and, and so these churches just get overlooked for a whole variety of reasons, but uh, on, on the ground, they're the ones where evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, for the most part, are growing. That's interesting. I want to commend one feature of this book, and it's something that distinguishes it from George Marsden's books on evangelicals and fundamentalists, and that is your consistent attention to tensions between white evangelicals and black Americans, even black evangelicals. Why has this in particular been such a difficulty for American evangelicals? Well, the, um, the, the, from the beginning of the, of the evangelical movement in America, it was multi-ethnic. Um, and one of the things that was striking about Whitfield's movement was that Whitfield and other evangelical revivalists sought to bring African Americans and Native Americans into the fold of uh, evangelical faith, even though uh, Whitfield was a slave owner and and really problematic on the issue of slavery, he nevertheless worked hard to evangelize African Americans and Native Americans, um, and that even just even doing that was unusual in the churches at at the time. Uh, but the fact that that Whitfield was a slave owner shows that it's not as if that the evangelical community was all harmony and equality about uh, social and economic and political relations. And that that tension of uh, the idea that we're all equal before God and everyone is in equal need of the new birth of salvation, uh, but that in this world there are all kinds of inequalities and usually whites have the power and uh, people of color don't. I mean, that that dynamic has hindered uh, evangelical unity from the 1740s forward. And so um, a lot of white evangelicals were pro-slavery in the 1840s, uh, which accounted for the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention in, in 1845. Um, and then, the, you know, many evangelicals were divided even among whites over uh, slavery leading into the Civil War. Uh, white evangelicals tended to be pretty passive about uh, the crisis of lynching in uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s, even though many black evangelicals were pleading with them to give attention in their churches and newspapers and so forth to the epidemic of lynching going on in the South in that era. Similarly, uh, many white evangelicals were very passive about civil rights, certainly not actively supportive, most white evangelicals. Um, and so that, that partly accounts for the founding of the uh, National Black Association of Evangelicals in the 1960s, um, that theologically that group was very similar to the National Association of Evangelicals, which was uh, didn't exclude non-whites, but didn't do much to actively recruit people of color either. And the National Black Association of Evangelicals was a thoroughly evangelical in theology and practice, but also wanted their organization to address uh, the civil rights movement uh, and advocate for uh, integration and voting rights and the, those sorts of things. And so I think that's that's perfectly typical of the 
uh, the the theological unity between white and black evangelicals, but uh, the the lack of uh, social and political agreement between many white and black evangelicals, and certainly echoes of that came out in the uh, the election of 2016 and the controversies over uh, self-identified white evangelicals' support for Donald Trump. Uh, that many self-identified African-American evangelicals found that white support for Trump to be extremely disheartening. Yeah, that is a story that this book tells. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because I do want our listeners to buy it and get your take on this because what I want them to realize is that, you know, your take on that story emerges out of all these other stories But before we leave today, I want to try out a theory on you, since we're talking about evangelicalism. As I said in the show's opener, I've experienced the term evangelical, the noun evangelical, more often as a function of my environment than a function of my choice. Uh, I wasn't one, and then I was one, and right now I'm sitting in my office at an evangelical college, so I am one. But Sunday morning, when I show up for church, I'm an elder at at a Disciples of Christ congregation, which is a mainline denomination, so I won't be one. Uh, So here's my theory. Whether or not I want to be an evangelical is largely irrelevant to the way that I actually travel in the world. I become one and stop being one based on the people around me. Now, a lot of people around me, uh, you know, put a lot of stock in either saying, I am evangelical, I choose not to identify as evangelical. Is there some kind of moral obligation to choose or does evangelical work better as a sociological historical descriptor? Uh, in other words, you know, either tell me to own up to it or uh, soothe my conscience. I, I think that my answer is, is somewhat in between in, in the sense that I, I definitely think there is a huge sociological dynamic to um, how and when you end up getting positioned as an evangelical. I mean, uh, for, for after all, probably the most common way that people end up identifying as an evangelical is when they're asked by a pollster if they're an evangelical. Um, and then, they, uh, you know, people have to think about in, in a split second, especially if it's an exit poll interview uh, on Election Day, they have to think about, well, am I an evangelical? And, and, and the pollster is not interested in what you mean by that. It's just a purely a self-identification issue. And so uh, I think there's a whole range of people who will identify as evangelical who may or may not have evangelical beliefs or experiences. Um, and and they, they may think, well, I, I guess you know, my mama wasn't evangelical. I, you know, I don't necessarily go to church, they may be thinking, but, but uh, you know, I, I kind of like these, you know, the kind of Republican uh, you know, religious people. And I kind of like to be one of those people. And so, yes, sir, I'm an evangelical. I mean, there's untold thousands of people who fit that sort of description who are identified as evangelicals, but who, who, for instance, may not go to church. And then there's undoubtedly millions of people who, uh, white people who identify as evangelicals and they do go to evangelical churches and have had, uh, the born again experience and so forth. But, I guess part of what I'm trying to do here is to redeem the term and say that historically and globally, that there is a common evangelical identity uh, that cuts cuts across uh, ethnicity, nationality, 
uh, and political views and so forth uh, that that can be boiled down to uh, the conversion experience and the felt presence of God and high view of the Bible. And so if you take stock and you say, yeah, you know, I basically fit those descriptors, um, then, then uh, you know, I think you should affirm being an evangelical. Um, and if, if you have any serious, you know, objections to any part of that, then, you, you, then you're not an evangelical. I mean, I, and I think what I like about that is it's attentive to what the term and movement has meant, meant historically, but it also means that there is still a global evangelical movement. And so that if you're worshiping in a house church in China, but you fit those characteristics, you're, you count. You're an evangelical. I mean, I understand there are some scholars who would prefer to have a more politicized, uh, ethnic, nationalistic view of what what evangelical means, and and that it really is a more distinctively American term. And I, I you know, they have good reasons for that, but I tend to have a more historic and global view of what the term evangelical means. That makes good sense. That makes good sense. Well, Tommy, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality. I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about evangelicals, evangelicalism, or whatever else as we head for the door? Well, one of the main takeaways I would want people to have from the book is that the term evangelical is in the media constantly. I mean, almost every day there's some kind of discussion about, quote, evangelicals doing something in politics, usually supporting Republicans. And, uh, and and there are definitely millions of people who very comfortably fit in that in that description. But I also would encourage people who are seeing that in the media, whether they're evangelicals or not, to to pause for just a second when they see that that story and, and say to themselves, which evangelicals and how do we know they're evangelicals? And it, it turns out that uh, the, the, that politicized definition that I mentioned at the very beginning um, is often uh, happening by design in the stories that we get about evangelicals today. Um, a lot of the stories about evangelicals really are only talking about white people uh, because the way a lot of the polls work is that they ask the ethnicity question first, are you white or are you something else? And they only ask white people then about whether they're evangelicals. Um, and there, there are some good reasons why they, why they do that. It's not, it's not racial bias that they do that. But, but I think we need to remember that, that we're talking about a, uh, a, a group of, of usually white voters that they're talking about when they, when these stories talk about evangelicals. And, uh, and even in America, the evangelical cohort is a lot bigger than that. Um, there are a lot of white evangelicals who don't vote, even in presidential election years. It's, uh, you know, 40 something percent. Uh, and there are a lot of Hispanics and uh, Asian Americans and African Americans who self-identify as evangelicals who are often not being accounted for in those stories. And then when you turn your eye to the globe, I mean, basically every major ethnic group around the world has at least a small evangelical community in it, uh, you know, China, and Nigeria, and, um, you know, Honduras. And so, I mean, there, there's just huge evangelical communities around the world who obviously are not Trump voters because they're not American citizens. And, uh, and, and they, they may have their own political concerns, but they're not about Democrats versus Republicans. So um, 
I guess what I'm appealing for is let's let's try to have a broader, deeper, more historic view of what evangelical has meant, uh, even just in America, and and realize that um, evangelicalism is doing fine uh, around the world, uh, and it's growing in some segments uh, in in America, but but um, the growth areas are not am- among uh, white Republicans. And so uh, evangelicalism is going to do fine in, in the coming uh, decades, but it's it's going to be uh, much more ethnically diverse and growing around the world and shifting into strengths in the areas of the global south. And, uh, you know, I think I think that's great, uh, but it, it sure isn't the, the stereotype of what an evangelical is that you see you know, virtually every day in the paper. Tommy Kidd, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.